Welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. This insight episode is taken from episode seven of the podcast, our conversation with Neil Hadaway. Neil is a senior research fellow at the Stockholm Environment Institute in Sweden. He works on various projects and is a leading expert on systematic literature review methodologies, as well as evidence synthesis in environmental and development topics. In this clip, Neil outlines the steps of a systematic literature review, talks about which databases to use, as well as the benefits and downsides of using Google Scholar as a search platform. Mm, yeah, one of the things I, w- I was interested in and might be useful for, for listeners is to actually walk us through how you think about approaching doing a systematic review what are what are the steps you if you want to say or call it a step along the way methodologically for how you would approach or think of kind of the gold standard of of reviews and then when you explained the the biases in the literature sample itself it made me think then what are the biases that go along with the methodological process of the review and then maybe going through those steps can help think about the some of the biases that occur along the way yeah sure so so the methodological approach that that we use is the same as the approach that's endorsed by the collaboration for environmental evidence the same as cochrane and for campbell it's kind of standard approach for a systematic review there are subtle differences between a quantitative review and a qualitative review so what i'll say will be most broadly relevant to quantitative evidence synthesis where you're you're collating quantitative research articles and the the key steps are, are the planning step which is really important where you're consulting with stakeholders to see whether the scope is right, whether the question elements are right, whether you, whether your definitions are broadly agreed on and whether stakeholders can suggest sources of evidence. Um, and then you would write a protocol that outlines the planned method for the whole process, get that peer reviewed, have public comments by your stakeholder group, maybe broadly across the, the broader science community as well. Um, once you get those comments back and you revise your protocol, the next step is to search for evidence and you search across multiple databases, you search for gray literature. Once you've got your big body of evidence, you then remove duplicates because there'll be duplicates between databases and you screen it at title and abstract, then at full text level, kind of filtering out going in an inverse pyramid down to this body of evidence that you know is relevant at full text level. Then once you've got this body of full texts, you need to extract data from them, descriptive information about the studies, but also the study findings, and critically appraise the studies for their internal and external validity. So the internal validity is how well the study did what it was supposed to do from a methodology perspective, how well it measured what it was setting out to measure. And the external validity, validity is how well that study matches onto your review question. You might have differences in spatial scale or slight differences in intervention that mean that it, one study is more relevant than another. And then following on from that critical appraisal, you use that that judgment of studies, which studies are better or more valid for your review in your synthesis, uh, where you combine the study findings to look at what the overall effect is. Or to So there are two approaches. One is kind of aggregating similar studies to see what, the, what an average effect is. And the other approach is a configurative synthesis where you're trying to understand what factors affect a relationship. And then once you finish your synthesis, you write it up, get that peer reviewed, and then the important kind of communication and tailoring messages part of the review. Um, and that's the general approach. There are subtle differences depending on whether you're doing a systematic review or a systematic map. So systematic maps are generally broader in topic but shallower. So they're, they're looking at larger bodies of evidence across lots of different interventions, lots of different populations. 
but they don't generally conduct the critical appraisal step or synthesize study findings. They're just asking what evidence exists and what does it look like. And then, as I said before, there's subtle differences if you're doing qualitative synthesis as well that you might be wanting to understand by combining qualitative studies. You might be wanting to understand how people have defined a specific concepts or what models have been used to explain particular intervention interacting with its environment. Yeah, but, but those are the broad kind of methods necessary. And the, the protocol, the stepwise screening and critical appraisal and using the critical appraisal outputs in synthesis, those are the really important parts that you can't skip. Yeah, I want to jump back for one thing on uh, related to the databases. How, how do you think about choosing which databases are going to be relevant? I mean, this will this will be different between disciplines. When I think about it, I think, well, I'm going to go to some of the big ones first, uh, things like Scopus or to Web of Knowledge. And then maybe you could say, the, what are the benefits and downsides of, of Google Scholar as a search platform? Yeah, sure. So there are hundreds and hundreds of different databases. Some of them are more general and broader, and some of them are more specific, either specific for subject areas, geography, languages, date ranges. And so you normally want to have a blend of both, have the broad ones and the narrow ones. No one database covers the whole of uh, research evidence. In our experience, the Web of Science core collections, which is the, the main group of databases or indexes that uh, Web of Science sells, might be about 30 to 50% of the evidence in a systematic review. But even that is probably like your go-to general very big database and it's still only covering a very small percentage in some reviews so you do need a range sometimes we have between like 10 and 20 different databases there are some systematic reviews that i've seen that have used 75 i think is the largest different databases wow and it, it's this is where it's really important to speak to an informatician or a, a library a librarian or an information specialist and all universities have them all university libraries have people who are dedicated to doing systematic review searches for healthcare systematic reviews generally. And they're, they're incredibly well-versed in which databases to use, what syntax to use in different databases. Loads of like nuanced stuff that you would never think about. Like, so Web of Knowledge doesn't exist anymore. It became Web of Science in 2014. People often say they searched Web of Science, but Web of Science isn't a database. It's a platform that you use to access different databases. The database within Web of Science that most people are talking about is Web of Science Core Collection. And that itself consists of a suite of different indexes that have different date ranges. And your institution might subscribe to different indexes and different databases than my institution. So we can find different, like sometimes maybe two, three times more evidence in one institution's subscription than another. So it's really important to be specific and know what you're doing and where you're searching. And this is where librarians are really important. Going on to the question about um, Google Scholar, Google Scholar has been shown to be really great at identifying specific evidence. So if you have an article and you want to find it, generally it will be in Google Scholar. It has the biggest coverage of any database as far as studies have shown, although it's, it's very difficult to, to, to actually study that. But when it comes to using Google Scholar in a, a systematic review, Google Scholar will never be a standalone resource that covers everything. The reason is Google has a really well-hidden, powerful algorithm that orders and ranks your search results. Google Scholar will only ever show you the first 1,000 search results. You can't see any more than that. And you have to use third-party software to download those first 1,000, uh, something like Publish or Perish, 
that allow you to download citations. So the problem is, if you search in Google Scholar and I search in Google Scholar, we might find different things. Right. Um, you can't download everything. So it's, it's really powerful, but it's non-transparent and not repeatable. So those are two of the central tenets of systematic reviews, which mean that Google Scholar can be used in systematic reviews, but only ever as an additional resource to back up those many databases and other forms of searching. Google Scholar just sits on the top as an extra insurance to make sure that you've captured everything. And we, right. we've shown in a study that I published uh, with some colleagues from DEFRA, I think back in 2015, that Google Scholar is really great at finding gray literature across lots of different organizations. But you have to look in maybe 20 pages through the search results or so to actually find that gray literature. So you do need to look at everything you're, you're seeing, but it, it's only an additional resource. Yeah, how much bias is the algorithm in Google Scholar creating in the results, do you know? I mean, you're saying, yeah, I think you kind of, at least my personal experience, you feel like it's learning what you want to find uh, specifically to the the field that you work in because you constantly search similar similar topics, similar papers, et cetera. Is there a yeah. way, like if you log out of your account, for example, and then, and then Google search or Google Scholar search uh, without logging in, does it, how big of a difference are you going to see there? Supposedly, Google Scholar does not remember things as well as Google does. So Google learns based on your your previous search history uh, and your IP address. So what other people on your IP address are, are searching for as well. Mm. So if you sit next to me in my institution, you search for crayfish and click on the first result uh, or the second result, it will push that result up my search result um, list when I search for the same thing. Google Scholar won't do that in the same way, but we still don't really know how repeatable it is. People, so far in the testing that I've seen, it doesn't seem to be learning within a system and between systems on the same IP address. But um, there are small differences every now and then that make you wonder. So it's very difficult to tell because that algorithm is completely hidden and you can't export large numbers of search results. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, you can listen to full interviews with all of our guests in the podcast feed. You can also find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, and can be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website. Thank you for supporting the podcast.